Bob. It's a little difficult for those of us that knew Dr. Bright to watch that video. Um, I came to Christ through the ministry of Campus Crusade in 1974 um, and got involved with Campus Crusade almost immediately and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for, uh, for Dr. Bright and kind of the perspective and the attitude and the philosophy uh, that you saw there in that video was Dr. Bright. I was on the Campus Crusade Board of Directors uh, for about uh, 25 years until just last year. And one of the primary reasons was so that four times a year for two days I could go sit uh, and just be with Bill. Uh, he was the real deal. And of all of the Christian leaders that I've known and met and had the privilege of knowing over the years, this man had probably more vision than, than all of them. He was a, certainly a man of vision. In fact, I'm reminded of a story about Sherlock Holmes that kind of uh, introduces Bill and introduces what I want to talk about. And Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip and after a good meal and a bottle of red wine, they lay down for the night and went to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes woke up, nudged his faithful friend, and said, Watson, I want you to look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson said, I see millions and millions of stars. Sherlock said, and what does that tell you? After a minute or so of pondering, Watson said, astronomically, it tells me there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduced that the time is approximately a quarter past three in the morning. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorology, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent for about 30 seconds, and he said, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. It all depends on your perspective. And Dr. Bright, when he said, it all depends on your view of God, everything that we have to say, no matter how technical or professional it is, it all depends on your view of God. And I know we're talking about giving, and uh, uh, our church recently had a fundraising campaign, like most churches do when they want to expand their building, and our pastor came up with a creative idea and he said, whoever gives the most money in the collection plate next Sunday gets to pick the first two hymns that we sing. So the next Sunday, they take the collection, and there was a lady that had written a $2,000 check. She was 75 years old. We live in a kind of quasi-retirement community. And she was the one who had given the most money. So the pastor called her up, and he said, ma'am, thank you, thank you, thank you. You've set such an example for the rest of us to give such a significant amount of money. And he said, as I promised, you get to pick the next two hymns. So she turned around, faced the congregation. She said, I'll take him and I'll take him. <laughs> you can have that one, Bob. <laughs> Well, I get to talk about probably my greatest passion, 
Uh, I, did, I came to Christ during, uh, through the ministry at Campus Crusade. Judy and I were called to full-time ministry just like Bob was. I was a businessman. I had a CPA firm. And uh, this year, that CPA firm, uh, or last year, turned 40 years old. Uh, and it was going extremely well. But God said, I've got a plan for you. And he called us out of the business world. We moved to Atlanta from Indianapolis. We had four kids below the age of 10. Uh, Judy got pregnant right after we moved to Atlanta. It was a bad pregnancy. He was a bad baby. He had a lot of allergies. And I was on the mission field. I was traveling 70% of the time. And Judy was in a strange city with no support group with five kids below the age of 11. And we're in full-time ministry. And she called me at the office one day after um, a couple of years, and she said, how do you get unchristian? <laughs> She's very direct. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, if this is the abundant life, I thought all the abundance I can take. <laughs> so we went to a Farrell's ice cream shop that used to exist here in Atlanta. And, uh, sat down, we took some napkins, and we thought through, I was 37 at the time, she was 35, and we said, where are we going with the rest of our life? And this is where God gave us a vision. And the vision was, can we help Christians plan and manage their money so they've got more money to give away? Because I had a sense that having been in the financial services world for 10 years prior to that, and having been on the mission field and seeing what could be done in the third world countries, as Dr. Bright said, there are trillions of dollars in the hands of evangelical Christians. So why don't they give? How, how can I help them? And the first client that I had, uh, he paid me uh, to do a financial plan for him. Uh, he was a physician. He was earning 85000 a year. I said, how much uh, wealth do you have? And he said, well, we've got a net worth of about $300,000. I said, what are your goals? And he said, we want to give a million dollars to Campus Crusade over the next five years. And to my uh, mind, I said, well, there's no way that, that that can happen. But when we designed a financial plan for him, in fact, he could give away a million dollars, and he did give a million dollars to Campus Crusade over five years. And the reason that he, he, he could was, first of all, his heart was that he wanted to, but secondly, it was like I found with a lot of people, they had a lot of uh, assets that they didn't know that they had, and he had capped his lifestyle. They weren't going to spend any more money on any more lifestyle. So we helped him uh, develop a plan to give away a million dollars. Dr. Bright asked me if I'd come on staff with Campus Crusade and meet with all their donors. Uh, so it sounds like a good idea, Bill, but I think I could probably do more uh, good for you if I stayed off staff and uh, worked as a, in a business and did this. God honored that through 25 years with that company. We uh, built uh, about 5,000 clients. We had 15 offices, and our clients were giving, uh, on the average, the best we could figure, about a billion dollars a year away. I never wanted to know exactly because, like David, I didn't want to number the Israelites, and I didn't think that I could handle it if I did know. Uh, today, that business I left uh, seven years ago, started another organization called Kingdom Advisors where I'm trying to teach other advisors, like Ron Anderson that you heard the first night, do what I did in terms of helping people plan and manage their money so that they have more money to give away. Because I feel like there's plenty of money within five miles of this hotel to fund the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and it's in the hands of Christians. I believe what Bill said.
So what I have been asking, well, I, first of all, an observation. And an observation is that there's really three levels of giving. And I'm going to talk about giving through my whole talk because that's what God called me to do and that's where I've had my experience. But I think there's three levels of giving. And uh, uh, first level of giving is the should give level. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 2, giving. Give as God has blessed you. That's what I would call income statement giving. But there's another level of giving. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, give out of what you have, not out of what you don't have. And that to me is balance sheet giving. That is, I could give. So I should give proportionately, but I could give off of my balance sheet also. And then the third level of giving is, is, the, is the giving that uh, Francis Chan talked about on the first night. Uh, and that was the faith giving. That's the would give. That is, I will give. God, if you just give it to me, I will give. So there's three levels uh, of giving. The should give, the could give, and the would give. And the third level is really the faith level of giving. I'm going to share with you uh, two models uh, that for me try to answer the question, why don't Christians give more? And uh, my experience is that there, there are predictable patterns for people giving and what steps they go through, uh, and there's reasons why they don't give either. I've answered thousands and thousands of questions on uh, people on radio programs and other places on their financial situation, and I want to talk about that. But what what, there's two things I'm not going to cover that I think are huge issues. And the reason I'm not going to cover them is because we really don't have time to go into them, and it's the subject of another talk. But the, the first one is the impact of wealth and the transfer of wealth on the next second and third and fourth generations. It's big. And it may be the biggest concern of those who God has blessed with significant uh, sums of wealth is that impact on the next generation. And I'll just say one thing about that, and that is if you love your children equally, you will treat them uniquely. So when you're thinking about passing on the wealth, that is a principle. I believe that's one of the reasons that God gave us five children, so that we could demonstrate that and prove that with our kids. We love our children equally. But we've never, what we've always said is that we're here to help you, but we're not going to treat you all the same because you're different. And as they grow up, they become different in terms of their needs. You know, I have one son who's a high school teacher. Uh, I've got another one who's an attorney. He doesn't need any help. He needs a lot of help, but not financial help. <laughs> Just kidding. He's a good kid. Very, very good kid. So you just take those two extremes of the two boys and their needs are totally different and they're going to be totally different. So we're not thinking in terms of our helping them uh, about uh, treating them equally. Uh, the other philosophy that Judy and I have is do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. And that's with your kids uh, and that's with uh, charitable organizations uh, that you decide uh, to, uh, uh, to support also. So I'm not going to talk any more about that wealth transfer. It's an issue. I think even the book that I wrote, Splitting Heirs, is available uh, here if you're interested in a lot of information on that. The second area that I'm not going to talk about 
but it's very worthy of conversation is kind of where we are economically and the problems that we're facing, business problems that, that people uh, are facing. Uh, I, I have feelings about that. I don't think you can borrow your way into prosperity, and I think we've attempted to borrow our way into prosperity. Uh, you can't do that. That's a violation of a biblical principle. Uh, and it doesn't work, but there's a lot of people whose home values have depreciated 40, 50 percent. Uh, there's, uh, and where we live, there's been a lot of short sales and foreclosure sales. There's a lot of businesses. I have a lot of friends that have been in, especially in the real estate business, that are gone. Uh, they have lost, they've lost everything uh, in terms of, of their wealth. So we're not going to talk about the financial problems. We're not going to talk about the economy, but we are going to talk about why don't people give more? And I've got a few verses, first of all, and then a diagram. It says this, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Just remember that word. Is that God's promise to me? Do you think Bill and Vonette felt bound up because of what they had or didn't have? There's freedom where the Spirit of God is. And Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's, again, it's a spiritual dimension, a spiritual issue. And John 8, 34 to 36, therefore, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. So is that a promise? Is that something that we can count on? I think so. So it comes back to, is that your perspective? Do you believe that God has that? In my intention, and I will say this, there are three things I think that people look for financially. One of them is security. Do I have enough to be secure? Secondly, do I have enough to be significant? And thirdly, do I have enough to be successful? And the reality is, in summary, you can't accumulate enough money to be secure. What about the people in Alabama that just lost everything? You can't accumulate enough money to be significant. I, I went to the Heritage Golf Tournament last Saturday, uh, and which is at Harbor Town. We live at Hilton Head now, and I took my grandson, who had never been to a golf tournament. We walked around the yacht or the yacht harbor at Harbor Town, and there were some unbelievable yachts that were there. And I thought, I wonder what the guy who owns the little yachts thinking about the guy that owns a big yacht. <laughs> you can't accumulate enough to not have or see the bigger yacht. And thirdly, from a success standpoint, it's the same way. You know, if I ask you, you would know who the richest man in the world is today, but could you tell me who it was 15 years ago? Most people couldn't. It was the Sultan of Brunei, as a matter of fact. So the richest man in the world will change over time. And uh, again, as Ron Anderson said on the first night, 150 years from now, nobody will know who that was anyway. So you cannot accumulate enough wealth to be significant, secure, or really successful in the eyes of the world. That's just my perspective on wealth and on accumulation. So if we've got wealth, why is it that Christians don't give? And here's the model, and this is an experiential model. This is my observations. Byron Johnson and I, Byron's from Baylor University, does research. We're talking about maybe testing this model, but why don't Christians give more? The first and foremost reason is spiritual, fundamental. It's their view of God. It's what they believe. Uh, we had a conference at, uh, for Kingdom Advisors uh, in Orlando a couple of months ago, and Alistair Begg from Cleveland 
used a term that I thought was really significant. He said, most of the people who are sitting in my pews are unconverted believers. Yeah, they're believers, but they're unconverted. They don't believe what they say they believe. And people don't give, fundamentally, it will always be spiritual. That is the beginning point, fundamentally beginning point. As Bill said, God owns it all. And if he does, that means that every spending decision that I make is a spiritual decision. And he gives me all things richly to enjoy, but he tells me not to store up for myself treasures. Well, what is my belief system and where does it come from? Uh, I had, um, I've had two opportunities. One, I testified before a congressional subcommittee a number of years ago. Senator Dodd and Senator Coates were the chairman of this subcommittee. And Senator Dodd asked me, what would you tell the American family regarding their finances? And I, and I thought, I'm going to tell him four things that are biblical, and he's going to laugh. But that's what I know, and that's what I believe. I said, well, Senator, I'd say spend less than you earn, avoid the use of debt, Build liquidity or margin or flexibility or freedom into your financial situation and force that long-term goal so that you prioritize your spending in the short term. He picked up his pencil and he wrote them down and he repeated them back to me. And he said, it seems to me that that'd work at any income level. Brilliant. <laughs> and God gave me the right answer. I said, you're right, Senator, including the United States government. <laughs> and we had a discussion about that. But those are four fundamental biblical principles of finance. I would add to that, God owns it all and give generously. Six principles to manage your life by. And if you've done that, you are the best positioned to avoid and to be prepared for anything of a dire consequence because you can't protect yourself against the tornadoes of life. You know what's true about those six principles? Let me tell you what. They're always right, they're never gonna change, and they're transcendent no matter what your family situation is, whether it's a business, it's uh, your, your family, they're, they're going to work in Africa, they're going, to, they're going to work in the Bronx, they're going to work in Buckhead. Six fundamental biblical principles that you can manage your life by and you will always be prepared for the unexpected. Doesn't mean that you will avoid the unexpected, but it does mean that you will be as prepared as what you could be. And you know what? Doesn't make any difference what they do at the government. God's not going to have to rewrite this book. It's not going to change. It's always right, always relevant, and it's never going to change. Well, that's the first fundamental reason why Christians don't give. Secondly is financial. And by that I mean most people have never, ever answered the question, how much is enough? What's the finish line? And 80, it's said that 80% of Americans have more debt than what they do assets, which means they're bankrupt. Well, that's a pretty good reason why Dave Ramsey is in 20,000 financial peace universities in 20,000 churches right now. Because people need to get out of debt for sure. 
they need to get out of debt. But that's only the beginning step. Uh, if you're a person of uh, wealth, what I found is it typically takes two to three years just to reposition your assets if you really want to give maximally. But there's financial reasons. How much is enough? And you know the biggest issue on how much is enough is not the wealth that you have, but it's the lifestyle you've chosen. Because the lifestyle drives everything else. Everything else in your financial situation. There's only five things you can do with money. You can give it away, you can spend it, you can pay your taxes, you can pay off your debt, you can save it, uh, or you spend it on your lifestyle. Thirdly is the vision. It says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 18, so we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Are we focused on the unseen? You know, as I walked around the, the yacht harbor there at Harbortown last Saturday, a week ago, and I looked at the yachts, I said, I can see those. But what don't I see? What is the unseen? Unfortunately, there's billions of dollars being spent every day attempting to make you and I discontent. It's called advertising. We don't know what we need until we go to the mall. And then we know what we need. We don't know the yacht we need until we go to the yacht basin. My son, who's a high school teacher, uh, English teacher, uh, teaches at a private Christian school, and uh, it's in a very affluent area, so most of the kids that go there come out of affluent families. And uh, Tim is the golf coach at this school. He's a, he's a very good golfer and loves golf, so he watches the tournament, he follows the golfers, uh, and he tells me the story. I did not see the story myself or see it in the press, but uh, one of the golfers, I think it was, well, I won't mention a name because I don't know for sure, but one of the professional golfers, he's fairly well known, uh, just bought a, a watch for $500,000. They only make 35 of these watches a year. Uh, and he bought this $500,000 watch and he was wearing it at a golf tournament, which is why my son saw this. It was on uh, television apparently. So. My son comes into his class on Monday and after this and was just bemoaning the fact of somebody spending a half a million dollars on a watch. And he said one of the brightest and most Christian young ladies in his class raised her hand and she said, that is absolutely terrible. You could buy a small house for that. What's the vision? What are you seeing? It's the focus on the unseen as opposed to the seen. And here's my experience. People will never, ever outgive their vision. You'll only give up to your vision. I had a ministry head call me one year and uh, in December, which is when they typically call, and uh, said, uh, God's given me a vision for you to give us $100,000. God told me this is what you're supposed to do. And uh, fortunately, I was mature enough to realize God hadn't told me that. But I, was, I said, well, you know what? I said, I'm really flattered that you think I could give you $100,000, which I couldn't. Uh, and the reality is I have about a $100 vision for your ministry. Now, that wasn't a criticism. It was that I didn't know that much about his ministry. I wasn't involved in it. But you'll never outgive your vision. We had a fundraising uh, event at the church we belonged to here in Atlanta, and they presented the new building and 
uh, all of the money that they were going to be putting into the facilities. And the associate pastor called me afterwards. He said, what'd you think? And I said, boy, I sure wouldn't give to it. And he was a little disappointed. I said, why? I said, because I don't give to buildings. I give to ministry. Why didn't you tell me what these buildings were going to accomplish? What's the ministry? What's the vision? Because people will never, ever outgive the vision. And my challenge to you is to ask God, God, what's your, what's your vision for me? He's got a unique calling for every one of us. And what is that vision? Think about what Bill Bright accomplished by following the vision of God. Fourthly, is we will always give to where we have relationship. And unfortunately, places like generous giving is one of the few places where you can see peer-to-peer -peer relationships. And people need peer-to-peer -peer relationships in order to maximize their giving. You need that, we need that. We need the encouragement of one another. We need other relationships that uh, empower us uh, to do what God has called us to do, to be able to ask the question, and do you think this makes any sense? You need a fellow believer that can answer that question. There are several of you here that I was in a relation in a peer group here in Atlanta where we were able to talk about things like that peer to peer. And I think peer to peer is really pretty significant. Additionally, you need ministry relationships where your heart is, where your passion is. You're always going to give more to where the passion is. And frankly, nobody can meet every need that's out there. I turn down most of what I'm asked for because I'm going to give to where I have the passion. And a lot of the things are certainly worthy of it, but where's my passion? Where's my heart? I want to give to those things. We support a lot of staff at Campus Crusade, but we support very few in the United States because we have a worldwide vision and we know there's plenty of money right here to support the staff. We want to give to where other people may not have the vision uh, or the passion or the relationship. One of the other things that I've experienced relative to relationships is that those of you that have created entrepreneurial wealth, entrepreneurs don't flock. They have built their own thing and they tend to have their own ideas and when they go to try to sell them to somebody else they, the other entrepreneurs don't have the same passion and I, I just say that so that you don't mislead yourself when you're thinking of your passion because your passion is your passion where is it that God has given you those relationships and then lastly is planning how much is enough what are you doing relative to your children. What is your plan? You need to be intentional about the plan. Uh, we found that most people didn't know how much they really could give. And the reason that we were able to help people give away significant sums of money was that when they became intentional about it, they found that they could give away a lot more than what they ever thought. My personal experience in working with wealthy donors was that typically over a three to five year period, their giving would go up about five times over what they were giving, even if they were giving significantly, because they didn't have an intentional plan about it. So why don't Christians give as much as what they could give? Well, spiritual, financial, their vision, the relationships, uh, and they don't have the plan. Let me do it another way and say, here are the questions that are not answered typically. Question number one is who owns it? Question number two, the financial is, how much is enough? Question three, what's my kingdom vision? 
Question four is, where are my giving relationships? Do I have giving relationships? And what's my giving plan? So there's five questions. Here's the interesting thing. If you don't ask the right question, you can never get the right answer. So if you're not asking yourself these questions, you can never get the right answer. And the other thing that I found in the uh, counseling advisory business is I can't force you to think any particular way, but I can perhaps cause you to think about certain things. And when I ask you a question, like how much is enough, what it does is it reveals you to you. It doesn't reveal you to me, but when I'm asked a question, then it reveals me to me, which is why questions are so important, but only the donor can answer those questions. Let me turn it around and say, can we, how do we move from spontaneous, minimal giving to intentional or maximized giving? Remember, this is a second model that I wanna take a look at. And there's five points in time where we make financial decisions in our spiritual life. So this is another model that I've observed uh, in working with, with uh, donors. You notice that I like, I like pyramids. I also love spreadsheets. Now, Judy does not like spreadsheets. She said, don't ever put me on a spreadsheet. And I never show her any of my spreadsheets, but I've got them. And there's a, there's a reason. Uh, in fact, I want to share another story with you to illustrate uh, the point. This is called the genie in the bottle. And a man was walking along the beach and found a bottle. He looked around and didn't see anyone, so he opened it. A genie appeared and thanked the man. I'm so grateful to get out of the bottle. I'm going to grant you a wish, wish but one wish only. The man thought carefully and said, I've always wanted to go to Hawaii, but haven't been able to because I'm afraid of airplanes. Boats make me seasick, so I wish that there would be a road built from here to Hawaii. The genie thought for several minutes and said, I'd like to accommodate you, but I really can't do that. Just think of all the work involved. Consider all the pilings just needed just to hold up the highway, how deep they'd have to be to reach the bottom of the ocean. Imagine the huge distance, an incredible amount of pavement. Think how strong it would have to be to withstand the storms. I don't think you understand what you're asking. I have to tell you that it's really too much to ask. Okay, said the man. The only other thing that I can think about that I would really like is I've always wanted to understand women. What makes them laugh? What makes them cry? Why they're temperamental? What they really want in life? Basically, what makes them tick? After careful consideration, the genie said, do you want that two lanes or four? <laughs> Point being, Judy and I don't always think alike. But I do believe that it's absolutely essential that we have unity in our thinking, ultimately when we make decisions. And here are decisions that we've made together. First of all, the, the salvation decision. We didn't make that together. She became a Christian two years before I did, and I threatened her with divorce because I was on the road to success and I was not interested. I'd grown up in a Christian home and I wasn't interested. It was, it was not relevant. But over time, she lived out 1 Peter 3. I was compelled. I had to deal with the issue. I read Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It caused me to realize that Christianity was rational from my training. Uh, and I made my decision to accept Christ in April of 1974 on my way to play golf. And I told God, I read the four spiritual laws, 
in the car by myself and I said, God, I'm not going to change anything, but I'm willing to be changed. And that day, I shot a 36 on the front nine. I said, boy, if I'd have known this, I'd have become a Christian a long time ago. It has saved me a lot of money. Well, I can remember that point in time when I made that decision. And obviously, the beginning point of maximum giving and intentional giving begins with the salvation decision. It's a point-in-time decision. Almost immediately is the, is the decision on lordship. And the lordship decision says he's either lord of all or he's not lord at all. And I think it is a conscious decision that's made. I, uh, Judy and I both made that decision shortly after we made the decision to accept Christ. Uh, we went out to Arrowhead Springs and we went through a process of saying he is lord of all. And I remember the night. I remember the hotel room at Arrowhead Springs when we said, he's Lord, he's Lord of all. Well, once you make the Lordship decision, there's another decision that follows almost immediately. If he's Lord of all, then it's the stewardship decision. And to me, the stewardship decision is, is a separate decision and it says, I will use everything he's entrusted me with. My time, my talent, my reputation, my business, my money, my relationships, the Word of God, everything that He's given me, I will manage it and use it for His honor and for His glory. It is a separate, distinct decision that is made is I am a steward. It's Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents. And then fourthly is the calling decision. Ephesians 2.10 says live the works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you know what works have been prepared for you beforehand? Because the calling decision, I believe, is a unique decision. I've had the, the privilege of speaking to thousands of financial advisors over the last seven years. And the point that I make with them is God's not called you to what you're doing right now where you are then the question is why are you doing what you're doing right now and what I found is that probably this is experiential it's not researched but nine out of ten Christians could not ask answer the calling question that I have interacted with at least nine out of ten George Barna says the only 27% of born-again evangelicals tithe. In my experience, it's less than that uh, that actually give. And it's even less than that that experience the calling of God, knowing exactly what he's called me to. And then lastly is the treasure decision. And that is, will I be a pipeline or will I be a bucket? Kyle Van gave his testimony in Austin a year ago at the conference, Generous Giving Conference. And I would encourage you to, to see that testimony. Kyle is a businessman from uh, Houston, was in the oil business, and he said, I made a decision that I was going to be a pipeline. He happened to be in the pipeline business, I think. And he said that I was going to be a pipeline and I was not going to be a bucket. He made a decision. Here are five decisions that I think also help us move from spontaneous to intentional maximized giving. Um, let me close. This is just a reiteration of what 
Uh, I've already said, John Piper says, you don't waste your life by where you work, but how and why. And here's the challenges. Number one is what is your perspective? First, Second Corinthians 4.18, do you see the things that are unseen? Not the things that are seen. But do you have God's eyesight? I tell the financial advisors and the, uh, is if you're not spending time with God, on a daily basis, you don't have anything to share with your clients because it's the only thing worth sharing and it's what God brings into your heart on a day-to-day business. Secondly, are your decisions that you're making faith-based? And by that, I mean asking and answering the question, what would God have me do? Hebrews 11.6 says, for without faith, it's impossible to please him. I think that means it's impossible to please him unless it's by faith. In every translation I've read, <laughs> that's what it says. Faith-based decisions. Thirdly, you cannot have financial peace of mind, financial contentment, financial freedom, unless husband and wife have unity. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. It's absolutely essential. It took Judy and I two years, not of debate, but of conversation, of figuring out how we were going to treat our kids uh, upon our death. Because she had a perspective and she knew the kids and who they were married to. In fact, she told me, she says, you know, I didn't get Prince Charming. I'd have thought one of my daughters would have. I like what uh, Chuck Swindoll says, that giving away your daughter is like turning a Stradivarius over to Godzilla. <laughs> Which is, that's true too. Unity with your spouse is absolutely essential. God did not, Howie Hendricks says this, God did not give you a spouse to frustrate you, but to complete you. And then lastly, are your counselors biblically wise? Do they know what questions to ask you? Because if they don't ask you the right question, you're never going to get the right answer. And if you read, I'm not gonna quote it right now, but if you read James 3, 16 and 17, what you'll see juxtaposed is the world's thinking and spiritual thinking when it comes to financial advice. The world's built on envy, jealousy, greed, self-serving, but God's wisdom is pure, peaceable, and all good things come out of that. And I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself the question of the counselors and the advisors that you're living to, do they think like Ron Anderson thinks? And there's a bunch of advisors that are in the room that I know how they think. Because if they don't think like you think, they can never help you ask and answer the right question. It is really important. There are thousands of very, very competent Christian financial advisors who are very competent and capable of helping you think through your financial situation. And God's called me to help them ask you the right questions. And I have had a joy and a privilege uh, being here again, uh, talking to you. You know, this is an audience that people dream about having an opportunity to speak to, not because of who you are, but because of the potential of who you are. Thank you.